In 2011, Platform as a Service was in its early days. It was around that time that Gabe Monroy started a container platform called Deus, with the goal of making an open-source platform as a service that anyone could deploy to whatever infrastructure they wanted. Over the last six years, Gabe has had a front-row seat to the rise of containers and the variety of container orchestration systems and the changing open-source landscape. Every container orchestration system consists of a control plane, a data plane, and a scheduler. In the last few weeks, we've been exploring these different aspects of Kubernetes in detail. Last year, Microsoft acquired Deus, and Gabe began working on the container services that are related to Kubernetes within Azure. Azure Container Service, Kubernetes Service, and Container Instances. In this episode, Gabe talks about how containerized applications are changing and what developments might come in the next few years. Kubernetes, Functions as a Service, and Container Instances are different cloud application runtimes with different SLAs, interfaces, and economics. Gabe provided some thoughts on how different application types might use these different runtimes. Full disclosure, Microsoft, where Gabe works, is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Gabe Monroy is the lead PM of containers at Microsoft Azure. Gabe, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, it's great to have you. You were involved in containers several years ago. You created Deus back in 2011. What was the landscape of platform as a service like in 2011? Oh wow! It takes a little time to, to rewind rewind back there, but yeah, uh, you know, at the time, you know, Heroku was extremely popular. That was one of the things I, I definitely remember. You know, I spent a bulk of my career around then in New York City, working with lots of different companies in the financial services sector. And the big bit of feedback I got from everyone was that they wanted that Heroku thing, but they wanted it running on their own servers. And, you know, so what they were saying was they wanted PaaS, but they wanted what we were referring to at the time as private PaaS. And, you know, that was, you know, something I started building, you know, way back when. And, and containers were really just an implementation detail for how you would build a PaaS system. If you're familiar with, you know, uh, solutions like Cloud Foundry, uh, you'll know that um, those solutions have had containers embedded from them, you know, since, since day one, really, Heroku as well. And so as I was looking to build this, you know, private Heroku that that people were asking for that that's what led me to containers early on and back then were companies just uncomfortable with the idea of being in the cloud why was it that they wanted a platform as a service but running on their own hardware well, interestingly, most of the people I was talking to, well, uh, not most, probably 50-50, but a significant number of them were interested in the private Heroku actually running on cloud. What they didn't want is they didn't want a multi-tenant shared PaaS environment. And the reason for that is, in my experience, pretty straightforward. It's due to you know what I term as sort of the failure of the first generation of PaaS. Where PaaS worked, it worked brilliantly, flawlessly, right? You could just 
code to cloud, you know, Git push and your stuff's running and everything was beautiful. The problems came in when those abstractions that were the things you, you use to simplify everything and allow you to get to the cloud so easy, easily. Over time, those abstractions would start to fail you and you'd realize, oh, well, actually I need to tune this thing and the platform is actually blocking me from being able to do that. Now, the platform authors and the people who were building the platforms would say, hey, look, that's by design. Uh, the customers would say, oh, well, you know, I need more flexibility than that. And as a result, this act of breaking through the PaaS abstraction caused customers to have to fall all the way down to the IaaS layer. And, and you know, that could be pretty painful if you're used to, you know, sort of get push, you know, Heroku master, right? Having to deal with VMs and configuration management and all that is, is pretty painful. So folks who were asking for this private you know, platform experience, what they were really saying you know, when I dug into it was they were saying, we want to use the platform abstraction where it suits us. But when we have to fall down to IaaS, we want it to work with the rest of our IaaS. We don't want to have to run a you know, separate island uh, for those two things. And so that was really the, you know, the big driving force uh, behind a lot of that. How did those conversations inform your design decisions when you started working on Deus? I guess I should give a little more color. Deus is what you used to describe as an open Heroku. This was a platform as a service that was open source that people could deploy wherever they wanted to. So how did those conversations that you were having in 2011 inform the design of Deus? Well, it was really important for us to meet the operations engineers who, who were really our customers, meet them where they were. And so the really early versions of, of the Deus PaaS actually used Chef. Not a lot of people realize this, but we actually used Chef because that's what the operations teams were comfortable with. That's what they were using to manage the other IaaS in their infrastructure. You know, Some of them were Puppet, but you know, Chef was pretty popular back then. And over time, as people started to get more into containers and, and Docker, you know, things like CarOS became more popular. We, you know, had to adapt to sort of the technology stack that the cutting edge operations team was, was using at the time. So, you know, what I would say is we were on the one hand crafting a user experience for developers, which was really around just enabling developer productivity, you know, agility, faster time to market, just making the process of software delivery easier. Um, while at the same time, constantly improving the operational model for how we did that, making sure that it was based on what kind of technologies high-functioning operations teams were using at the time, you know, starting with Chef, moving into Docker, moving into CoreOS, um, later into Kubernetes, before actually a period into which we, we supported multiple schedulers, and just making sure that we could do that reliably the whole time. And one of the things I'm really proud of, actually, is that we were able to do a series of re-platforms of the Deus uh, technology stack while simultaneously you know keeping the developer experience not just stable but improving it over time and then also replatforming over time to improve that the sort of underlying substrate um, we were able to do that with minimal disruption while keeping uh, strict semver compatibility uh, throughout the entire life cycle of the project something that taught me a lot actually about how to manage open source software projects well I'd love to talk a little bit more about the open source management conversation later on but to give people more of a feeling for what Deus was and some of the decisions that you made when you were building it. A container platform is often defined by the control plane, which is the centralized system for managing things. You've got and then you've got the data plane, which is the application containers. And then you've got the scheduler, which is 
what is gathering the resources and allocating the resources based on whatever's available at a given time and scheduling them out to become application containers on the data plane. So there's been a variety of these container systems over the years that are built with various schedulers and various ways of doing the control plane and the data plane. What are some of the design decisions that somebody has to make when they are architecting one of these container platform systems that we have seen several of over the last several years? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. I, you know, I think the the term control plane and data plane, it actually derives from you know, network equipment. And the idea there is that you know, the control plane is how you configure the network equipment, think like a firewall or a router or a switch. Um, and then the data plane is is the path through which you know the packets flow. Same thing is in, you know, true in storage systems, right? You've got your, your data plane for your storage system and then the, the uh, sorry, control plane for storage and then the data plane or data path for the storage subsystem is where you actually read and write blocks you know, to and from. Now, it's critically, you know, the, the work gets done in the data plane. So making sure that your data plane is fast and doesn't have any extra hops and is extremely reliable is probably the most important design consideration, right? You, you need to optimize for that data plane because that's where the value of the platform comes from. Um, the control plane is, is really how you operate the thing and, and manage the thing. And for that, you want to make sure that, you know, it can be updated, you know, easily, you know, you can, you know, survive, you know, certain degrees of failures. Also things like security, authentication, authorization, you know, backup, restore, disaster recovery, all that, you know, is very important for control plane services. So yeah, that, you know, optimizing for that data plane performance is, is probably the biggest one. And you mentioned that Deus was a system that was built to be able to accommodate multiple different schedulers. And some of the schedulers that we have seen are things like Docker Swarm and Kubernetes and Marathon, which is Mesos, the scheduler on, on Mesos. Tell me about what you have to do to build a system that can accommodate different schedulers. Well, the first I'd say is is just making sure that you have a good abstraction around how you interact with the data plane of the cluster, right? And this is just sort of standard architectural best practice, right? Making sure that you have a generalized interface for how you want to run, you know, containers on an orchestrator. If you're experienced at all in, in writing software systems, chances are you will have built something that is you know, a good abstract interface that you can reuse across multiple orchestrators. The real trick comes in, you know, when you're trying to target three orchestrators at the same time, you're actually bound by the lowest common denominator feature set, which means that, you know, if one of the orchestrators supports a really cool new feature like IP per pod in Kubernetes, well, you can't actually use that, you know, in your interface because it's not supported by two out of the three orchestrators, right? So you have to, you know, cons- consistently th- track what type of improvements are happening and make sure that you're improving that lowest common denominator feature set. That's a lot of work. And what we ended up finding over time was that, you know, customers were really better served by us taking a bet on one orchestrator, you know, because really at the end of the day, the people who were using Deus, they were developers, right? They weren't really concerned with the details of the orchestrator. The operations teams, you had to you know, serve those developers. You know, they cared a little bit more about which orchestrator was being used, uh, but not enough for us to keep supporting three over time. So while I was proud that we did it, and while while the team and, and, and you know myself certainly learned a lot in the process, I wouldn't advise other people to you know, do something similar. Well, I think this is something that the entire industry was dealing with. I, I'd actually love to get your 
perspective on this. Yeah, so I, I've been doing the show for about two and a half years, and for a considerable amount of that time, I was doing some coverage of the container space and talking to people about Kubernetes and Mesos and Docker Swarm and talking to vendors. You know, I would go to expos, vendor expo halls at the conferences, and you talk to the vendors, and they're supporting Kubernetes and Mesos and Docker Swarm. And it seemed like there was a lot of overhead for having to maintain compatibility with all those different systems. And, you know, one of the things that seems positive about the end of the container orchestration wars, or I mean, if you maybe you agree with me that the wars are over and Kubernetes has kind of won, but everybody can kind of row in the same direction and not have to think so much about compatibility with the other systems. Would you agree with that thesis? Yeah, I would. You know, the, the one thing I would add to that, you know, yes, you know, Kubernetes is one, you know, all the you know major clouds are now offering Kubernetes as a service uh, support or, or have announced it. Some are further along than others. Um, even vendors like Docker and Mesosphere have, have you know, to a large measure, you know, acquiesced to its customer demand for, for Kubernetes-based uh, solutions. So in that sense, it's good. But in another, I'd say that these are never winner-take-all scenarios, right? So Kubernetes is going to be the dominant um, orchestrator going forward. That's clear. But, you know, things like Docker Swarm and Mesos and, you know, even things like ECS on Amazon, you know, those will live for a while because people who have made investments in them aren't going to back away overnight. Hmm. So you mentioned with the open source aspect of dealing with Deus that you, you learned a lot. And, you know, this is something I'm kind of dealing with. We have this set of open source projects with Software Engineering Daily and there are some things that I have found to be unexpected, even with just this project, which is fairly simple. It's like these apps that people can open, can people can download, and basically it's open source ways of running software engineering daily apps on their phones. And there's just simple things like always keeping the repositories in a state where people can stop by and check it out, and you know things like going through the GitHub issues in a timely manner. But this is even with just a simple project. So I imagine with Deus there was a whole lot more volume of stuff that you had to deal with. And also you were building a company around this system. So what were the pros and cons to building a company around an open source project? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say is is that we weren't really expecting the project to take off in the way that it did. It, it really caught us all by surprise. I mean, we were you know, trying to build things for the customers that we were talking to, and we sort of open sourced it and were a little bit shocked at how quickly it, it took off and how quickly we were... I don't want to say burdened because, you know, we were very, the, the contributions were, were very welcome, but certainly the amount of open source maintenance, you know, that we had to do was, it was hard for, for a team as small as we were at the time. So it was tricky. But what I will say is that when we got disciplined about it, and you know, what I mean by disciplined is you know, making sure that we were doing doc first development, right? So that we would write documentation on features before we would build the features and we would, you know, ideally write documentation to Describe the features, then we would write tests to, you know, prove out when we were done with the feature, and then we would implement the feature. I mean, we do all that in the open, and then we use sort of GitHub planning processes, you know, that were very open source friendly. You know, doing a lot of that stuff not only did it make for better software because the processes were good processes by which to create software, it also allowed for us to accept external contributions that were 
quite meaningful. Um, we actually had a period of time, you know, where we had external maintainers on the project. I mean, these are people, you know, some of which, you know, I'd never actually still to this day have never spoken with, you know, who were tremendous contributors to the code base of Deus, reviewers. They were functioning as core members of the team and they were doing it all on a volunteer basis. And, and part of the reason they were able to do that is because we did all the project planning and, you know, basically everything revolving around getting software delivered for the Deus platform. We managed to do all of it in the open. And when you do that successfully, like I said, not only does it lead to better software outcomes, it allows you to scale your software effort through legit open source engagement. That's one of the pros. I think on the downside, I mean, it's tricky to monetize a business like that, right? It's, it's uh, you know, when you're building software for free, you know, there's not a lot of really great open source business models. And so that's a thing that, you know, not not only us, but a lot of companies re- ended up wrestling with. So that, that was probably the, one of the bigger challenges we had to deal with. Mm. Yes. Well, I need to consider that option of the uh, documentation first and then implementation. I actually hadn't heard of that, but that makes complete sense. Is that that's pretty common for open source projects? No, although you know, for ones that have some significant rigor around them, you know, projects like Deus, but also projects like Kubernetes, right? So Kubernetes, the way you add a feature to Kubernetes is you write the docs for the feature, and you know, people review the docs, they discuss the docs, and you know, once that's clear, then you go about building the feature, right? And and it's just a better way to go about making software collaboratively. I'd say now, obviously, some of that process and overhead doesn't make sense if you're a smaller team and and you can kind of you're optimizing for agility and and you know, building an MVP and that. That sort of thing. But you know, when you're dealing with an infrastructure software project and every change is pretty critical, changes can result in outages of, of mission-critical software that's running on top of your platform, for example, the bar is a lot higher and things like doc-first development uh, end up being pretty important. So Deus was eventually acquired by Microsoft. And since joining Microsoft, you've worked on a couple different projects. You've worked on the Azure Container Service and Azure Container Instances, among other things. Describe the projects that you're involved with. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot that we're doing in Microsoft now. So obviously, Azure Container Service is is one of the you know popular things. And you know w- when I came on on board, Azure Container Service was really focused on Docker, Mesos, and Kubernetes. And since then, we've really shifted our focus to where our customers are, which is on Kubernetes. And that's you know why we launched the new Azure, the AKS uh, version of our service, the next version of Azure Container Service, which is a managed Kubernetes. In addition to that, we have uh, Azure Container Instances, which is something I'm really proud of. It's a first-of-its-kind containers running in the cloud, no VM overhead, micro-billing, very, very innovative uh, service. Also, uh, Service Broker technology. We recently announced Open Service Broker for Azure. Uh, this is something used to glue container workloads to you know things like Azure Data Services, think Cosmos DB or Azure Blob Storage or you know Azure Postgres, things like that. We also have a bunch of developer tooling that we build, you know, things like Helm, Draft, Brigade, which are really designed around empowering developers who are using Kubernetes to be more productive with the platform. And yeah, lots of other stuff too, mostly in sort of the CNCF space. Um, I, I actually sit on the board of this, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation where I represent Microsoft. And so really, you know, most of the, the technologies represented there are, are part of uh, the, the Azure, what we refer to as the Azure Containers uh, product product family. So I would like to go deeper on the Azure Container Instance idea, because this is pretty interesting. And this is almost kind of getting back at your roots of wanting to do 
the open Heroku sort of thing, because I think of the Azure from the user's point of view of just, I mean, if you're an average user in a dorm room who is building an application and you just want to deploy some Node app, you probably don't need a VM. You probably don't need an entire Kubernetes cluster. It seems like the abstraction of just a single container is the right abstraction for the average kid in a dorm room building an online game or some basic e-commerce application. Can you describe what an Azure Container Instance is behind the scenes? What goes on when I spin up an Azure Container Instance and what is it running on behind the scenes? Well, so there's limits to what I can say, but I'll, but I'll share, share, share what I can. So, you know, what I'd say is that Azure Container Instances is, it's very simply, it's your container running in the cloud, right? And so you don't have to deal with VMs. It's built by the second. So it's, it's a micro-billing model and it's just extremely easy to get up and running. AZ Container Create, the path to your container image. You know, if you need to have pull secrets, you need to run it, that sort of, you know, authentication, that sort of thing. Specify how much CPU and memory if you want and boom, it's running. Right, mm. that's it, and extremely easy to get uh, you know to use, and and yeah, so it's a pretty powerful concept. I can tell you that it's actually you know one of the interesting things about it is it's not just an individual container. If you look at the API for it, it's actually a container group, so you can run it's equivalent to a pod, which is a group of containers that share the same process namespace that can all sort of you know, run together as a co-scheduled unit, right? And so that, that, that allows you to do all different sidecar patterns and, and things like that. So mm-hmm. that's really what the, the primitive is. As far as you know, what's powering it, you know, I can tell you that there's a lot of concepts that we've taken from systems like Kubernetes that are pretty evident in the architecture of ACI. And, and you know, I think that you know, hints a little bit to, to how it's uh, being powered behind the scenes. But right. can't, can't say any more than that. I don't, don't want to get you in trouble. <laughs> when you think about it from the user's point of view, so I imagine container instances in this spectrum. So you've got, when you think about the next generation runtimes, you've got serverless functions on one side of the spectrum where you just throw code up and it runs for as long as you need and then it spins back down and it basically takes up the smallest footprint of resources imaginable and then on the other end of the spectrum you've got kubernetes where you're managing an entire cluster yourself and then somewhere in between that you have a single container instance tell me if i if you think that that is a fair spectrum and maybe talk about what are the different workloads when people are considering serverless functions versus single container instances versus an entire Kubernetes cluster, how should they think about where to throw their runtimes? Sure. Well, I think the best place to start is with the word serverless, which is just, you know, one of these words that we're saddled with that is not very descriptive <laughs> and, you know, it's problematic. And we keep and yet, doubling down. <laughs> yeah. And everyone knows it's important. So we keep talking about it, right? Um, and it is important, right? Uh, you know, the best definition I've heard for serverless is, is a, it's a conflation of three things. The first is a system that has invisible infrastructure, which is to say that you're not worried about things like virtual machines or network cards or things like that, right? It's just the infrastructure doesn't appear to you. Um, the second is that it's micro-built, right? You know, people you know, want to pay you know, for what you use and at an extremely granular level. That's the second you know, dimension of these systems. And the third is what we refer to as an event-based programming model, which is to say that, you know, your 
functions or, or whatever they are will respond to an event, right? And that's the method by which you invocate, you know, these these different you know serverless functions. The first example that you provided with you know sort of the serverless functions or functions as a service, as I like to call it, it's all three of those things, right? It, the infrastructure is invisible, it's microbuilt, and it's event-based programming model, right? With Azure uh, Container Instances, ACI, it's actually the first two without the third. So it's invisible infrastructure and it's microbilling, but you don't have to use the event-based programming model. And I think that's really important because if you've ever tried uh, you know, asynchronous programming and you, know, you got into sort of callback-based you know, Node.js or maybe Twisted Python or, or some other event-based programming uh, model – you know, for certain problem dom- domains, it's just great, right? It, it, wow, it's so much less code, so much easier to reason about. And then for other problem domains, it's actually not great. And it can be kind of a, a pain to work with. And you wind up in callback hell, and it's just a complete disaster. And then you go, oh, wait, if I write this in a bunch of synchronous code, you know, it's 10 lines of code, and I know exactly what's happening versus this twisted mess of callbacks, right? So, you know, I think where the event-based, you know, functions-based program- programming model fits that's terrific, but there's a lot of cases where you don't want that, right? Or where that's too limiting for other reasons. And that's where ACI is just you know, really, really perfect. I actually think it's the best of serverless because I think everyone wants invisible infrastructure and microbilling. And I think sometimes you want the event-based model, but not all the time. You know, what I like to think, of, you know, I like to describe it, you know, I've worked in PaaS for a while. The pejorative for PaaS was, you know, 12 factor is, is super limiting, right? That's what everyone would say, you know, oh, why would I want to, you know, my app is, doesn't fit 12 factor. Therefore, I, you know, pass doesn't work for me. Well, if you thought 12 factor was limiting, wait till you meet functions-based event programming, right? I mean, it's extremely limiting as to, you know, the model and, and what you can do with it. So um, having something like ACI in your toolbox is, I think, extremely important. What about the scaled down quality of the functions as a service? That seems like a, a quite a useful aspect of it to me. I mean, that's that's one of the, the applications I see for, for functions as a service that generally, from what you said, I, I agree with you. Like, I would rather have, in the ways that I can architect applications in my head, ACIs, the, the container instances, would make much more sense for most applications. But certain situations where you just want eventually to get to a zero runtime. I mean, I guess you could use, could you just use container instances for those instead of the serverless functions? Here's where I wink, wink, and sort of tell you a little bit about what we have planned here coming up. Imagine a world in which you had a Kubernetes cluster where the control plane was free, which is, by the way, it's free with AKS. And then you had a Azure Container Instances runtime that was wired up to Kubernetes directly, where you only paid for the containers that you were running in Kubernetes, you know, for by the second, right? So in other words, you had serverless Kubernetes. So if you think about that, you know, serverless Kubernetes gives you all those benefits, right? You only pay for the containers that you're running. You know, if you only want to, you know, run containers to process some functions and then scale them down to zero, you can do that. If you want to run some batch processing and then, you know, kill your batch processing or your workloads, you can run that while keeping your uh, Kubernetes control plane running all the time. So you really can get those benefits of a scale to zero or what, you know, Brendan uh, Burns likes to refer to as the... uh, zero to N scaling model. You can scale all the way from a cost point of zero all the way up to N nodes and seamlessly all the way through. It's pretty powerful stuff and, and something we're, we're going to be offer, offering at the container level you know, soon enough. That sounds fantastic. And I don't know if this is how the 
Azure function as a service platform works, but we did a show about how you build one of these things. And the architecture that, that I am aware of is instead of the code actually running on a server when you don't need it, it's sitting in a database. So you just have raw text. You know, you have a program that you would like to run for users when your users need it. But for most of the time, it's just sitting in a database. It's a database entry of raw text. And when the user requests it, the code gets taken out of the database, scheduled onto a container, and then run on the container. And then the user's request gets serviced with that container's you know, response to your request. And then, of course, assuming this is how similar to how you do your function-as-a-service scheduling, that uh, spin-up time where you're taking the code out of the database and scheduling it onto a container and responding to the user's request, that is known as the cold start problem. And that is the knee-jerk reaction whenever anybody wants to say, well, you know, you can't get a free lunch with these serverless functions. So maybe you could tell me about... Well, I guess if your Kubernetes, if your serverless Kubernetes isn't publicly public information quite yet, maybe you can't tell me that much about the how you're working against the cold start problem. But maybe you could give me some uh, guidelines for how you start to approach the cold start problem. Well, you know what I'd say is that if you're running your functions runtime on top of a serverless Kubernetes environment, let's just say, you have control over how you tune that, right? Because you know better than anyone what your cold start parameters need to be. And, you know, maybe you know what times of day users are going to be coming in, or maybe you want to, you know, precede, a, you know, a certain you know, number of hot, you know, or warm, you know, container instances to, you know, process your workloads. You get more granular control over that versus just outsourcing it to, to the cloud provider. Um, that's one thing I'd say. The other thing I'd say is that, look, you know, the, these functions run times like Azure Functions, uh, you know, our, our like first party you know, functions as a service offering. I mean, we're just getting uh, warmed up to use uh, the phrase here in terms of, you know, how we're going to be optimizing these cold start times. Um, so I would expect a lot of improvements there as the you know, months go by. And for a lot of workloads, my hope is that that's not going to matter for people who are using Azure functions. You know, if it does, you know, I think there's a lot of other options for you, including, you know, things like AKS and ACI um, that are going to you know, make, give you a little bit more control and and, and flexibility. Yeah. Have you seen any scheduling problems that look particularly difficult? Like when you were building the Azure container instances, were there any scheduling problems that looked particularly hairy? Yeah, I guess what, one of the things I'd say is is there's some widely published limits you know, as to how large some clusters can can get using traditional container orchestrators. And, and that's true regardless of what the backend uh, technology is. So one of the trickier things for us was at the scale that we operate, we actually have to have multiple levels of scheduling. And that's not a problem that most folks have to deal with, but it's something that we have to deal with at Azure. So that was uh, sort of tricky. Besides that, I think scheduling is a pretty you know, well-trodden path. I think where things get interesting are, are when you start to mix state into your scheduling decision. And, and things like data locality, uh, federation is also interesting. You know, when you're dealing with multiple regions, and you know, you know, trying to place workloads, you know, that have access to data as you know one of the dimensions on on scheduling or, or the fastest path to data. Other things like temporal scheduling, you know, scheduling based on time, um, so that you can you know, ideally optimize you know batch heavy clusters, you know, for 
to run batch workloads over weekends um, and, and, and things like that. Um, lots of uh, different dimensions to scheduling, but I'd say nothing nothing super tricky. I think federation, though, is probably what I'd pin as really the next frontier in, hmm. in, in scheduling. What does that term federation mean? Uh, federation means wiring up multiple control planes so that they can be surfa- uh, serviced by a single federated control plane. So imagine I have a cluster running in you know Azure's East US, I have another one running in West US, and I have another cluster running in in West Europe. And uh, you know I want to you know have three separate AKS Kubernetes you know environments running, uh, but I want to talk to them as if they're one cluster. So I, w- I stand up a separate federation control plane that has those three uh, different clusters as backend resources. And then I interact as, as users, I interact only with that federated control plane surface. And that actually will do interesting things regarding annotating the scheduling, you know, do different things around workload placement. For example, it might know that this user should default workloads to, you know, East US, or um, it should, you know, automatically spread workloads of this type across all three regions, right? That's where you know you have that extra layer, you know, and, and room for different types of uh, scheduling optimization. Well, that sounds extremely useful. Like I've heard about, you know, if you are a cloud provider operator, it's not necessarily easy to roll changes out to all of your different availability zones, and uh, I'm sure it's appealing from the standpoint of a cloud provider to have better abstractions for doing that. And it makes sense makes sense to do that in the control plane, a control plane that's con- that's communicating with all the other control planes. Yeah, and, and and you know, as with all things, it's like you know, is the complexity worth it, right? Because the other way to to tackle that is to just have smarter clients, right? So you could tackle the same thing by having just a client that was talking to your three control planes, and the logic was embedded there, right? You know, how much value do you get by adding a federated control plane in front? It's still up for debate, right? Because there's a you know, you you're again, you're dealing with things like least common denominator, you know, feature sets. So for example, you know, your federated control plane will only support APIs that are available as, you know, in all three clusters, right? So if there's a newer API available in one of those clusters, well, you can't access that API through the federated control plane. And lots of other, you know, complexity involved with a system like that, as you might imagine. So I think it's an interesting, we're, it's an interesting spot today. You know, we're starting to see some early um, use of federation and, you know, a lot of really good use cases for why it matters. And yet I'm not convinced that, you know, in, in a lot of cases that just smarter clients may not be the better answer. So in that model, and forgive me, because I, I guess I don't know too much about Kubernetes, but in that model where you're talking about having a central control plane that federates requests out to a set of control planes, like you've got the central control plane sitting in Redmond somewhere, and it communicates with the control plane in US East 1A and US East 1B and US West 1A, and you've got control planes in each of those places that are managing the workloads of a, of a cloud services over an entire data center, is the way to look at that logically, is it that in that centralized control plane, you have like, this is the same Kubernetes system as the other control planes? Or are we just talking about a communication between different Kubernetes instances? Like, is this a hierarchical structure or is it a flat structure? Well, you know, the idea is that it should abstract everything into one big Kubernetes cluster, 
right? So, um, you know, the idea is that you're just dealing with one big Kubernetes cluster, but you get a little bit of scheduling, you know, affinities and, and magic kind of mixed into the model, you know, and that's that's in keeping with sort of the, the purpose of the Kubernetes API. So in that sense, I'd say it's really trying to flatten the objects um, rather than, you know, try and craft a, a hierarchy. I'd also say that Kubernetes is pretty anti-hierarchical. Um, you know, the whole um, system is really built upon the concept of loose coupling um, through labels and, and you know, key value labels and, and uh, label selectors. So hierarchical uh, is just not how Kubernetes works in general. Then given that you work at Azure now, I always love to ask people who work at cloud providers, can you tell me some any crazy stories or cool things that I wouldn't learn unless I was working at a cloud provider up close? Oh, man, it's not a lot I can say, <laughs> you know, publicly. I, I think most of it, though, has to do with just the scale of it. I mean, if you look at Azure, you know, not a lot of people know this, but we have more regions, you know, cloud regions than any other cloud provider. The scale at which we operate is just breathtaking. And, you know, what it takes to, to manage you know, resources at that scale is, you know, honestly, before I joined, I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't really know what I was getting into. I'd, I'd heard people talk, you know, speaking about it, but it's something you have to really see to believe. It's like, you know, yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to, to wrap your head around. But <laughs> yeah, just the, 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 the sheer magnitude of it. And, and you know, also things like the amount of customers that Microsoft has, has access to. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, really everyone or, or most people are a Microsoft customer on some level. Right, whether that's you know Windows Server or Office or you know, SQL Server or Azure Xbox. or Xbox or I mean anything, right? Like you know, pretty much everyone is is a Microsoft customer these days, and that really becomes very apparent, um, you know, when you're on, on the other side of the fence and and just dealing with. Yeah, you know, I, I just consider myself very lucky to get to you know interact with the type of customers that you know Microsoft you know brings you know every day. Very re- rewarding experience. Mm. I'd like to talk a little bit about modern deployments of Kubernetes. So so if I'm deploying Kubernetes today, like like let's say I'm just rolling my Kubernetes out at the bank. Like I run a, I run a bank and it's got uh, thousands of employees and many engineers. What's a good rule of thumb for how many clusters I want? Like do I want one cluster per team or how should I think about how many clusters I want? Oh, that's a great question. And, and this is something I, I talked a bit about at, at KubeCon recently. And, you know, the, there's no you know, one size fits all answer is what I'd say. I think the dream scenario is that you have one big cluster and it's safe enough that everyone can use it for all different you know, uses, dev, test, prod, across multiple teams. You know, that's, that's all fine. And part of the benefit to that is that you get to drive your utilization really high. You can run that one cluster at 80% plus utilization. Um, and that's going to mean a lot less cost in terms of compute, um, but also a lot less operational cost because ideally you have a, a smaller team who can operate that. In practice, what happens is that the control plane is not something that people trust. You know, people want to have fault domains for the control plane for that cluster. So for example, I don't necessarily trust that upgrading my dev cluster or the, you know, the upgrade of Kubernetes from this version to the next version isn't going to break stuff. 
right? So if you're not confident in that, then, well, you need to split your cluster so that you can test your upgrades, you know, separately, right? And so that's part of the reason why you see dev uh, test and prod clusters, you know, uh, spinning out is because people want to give the control plane a test drive and they want to make it part of their software testing journey as they promote code. So that's pretty important. Um, And then the other is on the team dimension is, do you have proper role-based access controls and proper segmentation, security segmentation inside your clusters to make sure that you don't have noisy neighbors? You know, are you labeling your workloads properly? Do you have, you know, with regard to CPU and memory limits, things like that? Do you have proper tenancy configuration? Are you allowing privileged container executions that could in theory do bad things to the hosts? You know, what's your security posture like for a given Kubernetes cluster as it relates to other teams, friendly teams? And so what we see is, you know, for people who have good security posture, you know, they'll be more comfortable running multiple teams, but they might not be comfortable with the control plane upgrades. So for those folks, you'll find them running dev test and prod clusters and just upgrading them, the Kubernetes version. For more conservative teams, you'll see a matrix of dev test prod for each team. And I think that there's a lot of people who are still there right now. Um, and then layer into that, oftentimes people will have uh, devs have their own Kubernetes environments to do their own dev sort of in the cloud. And that adds another dimension um, to it. That said, I think as the controls and, and some of the tunables and the isolation primitives get better, I think we'll start to see uh, more of a trend towards single larger clusters. Hmm. Great answer. What if I am an IoT company? Like, let's say I'm an oil refinery, and my oil refinery is several football fields in square footage, square mileage. I've got sparse internet across my oil refinery, and I've got plenty of things that would be considered IoT devices. Could I connect all of those across a single Kubernetes cluster? And what, what would be the risks of doing that when I have intermittent internet connections between the different nodes in my giant oil refinery? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I can tell you that we are actively exploring um, you know, Kubernetes uh, you know, for these use cases. It's, it's an interesting area here. You know, Kubernetes has uh, the concept of heartbeating between the different nodes. So think of an IoT um, you know, device and the Kubernetes control plan. Um, and so one of the things that we're doing, for example, with Azure Stack, um, you know, which is kind of like this cloud in a, in a box you know, appliance that you can buy from Microsoft today, is you know, the, the idea that you'd be able to have you know an IoT device talking to a Kubernetes uh, environment running uh, on an oil rig somewhere, and that Kubernetes environment could be federated with a cloud-based Kubernetes environment, and you could in theory have all these things uh, you're working together. You know, obviously the trick is that uh, you, know, as you said, if you have poor links between your devices and sort of the the home Kubernetes on the edge, um, that can be tricky. But you know that's also going to be problematic regardless of what your your management system uh, you're using is. For example, you know, when you need to push down an update to the IoT you know, devices themselves, you need to rely on connectivity <laughs> to inform the device that it needs to get an update, right? So on some level, you have to assume there's some connectivity between the IoT devices and some edge device. You know, can that be Kubernetes? Technically, yes, but there's certainly more work to do there uh, to, to figure out how feasible, you know, something like that is. Mm. Another random example I was thinking of is, what about like a connected car or a smart car where you've got you know, the cars 
driving around. And the biggest question I have is, like, would it make sense to deploy Kubernetes to a car like that? Like, And maybe you would have different nodes that are managing the wheels or managing the dashboard. Or Have you seen anybody using Kubernetes in a car? The things that I've seen people using Kubernetes for would <laughs> freak you out. And not all of which are advisable, mind you. But I mean, yeah, you know, in theory, you know, Kubernetes is a system to enforce desired state for you know, compute resources. And anywhere where you have that problem, um, you could, in theory, use Kubernetes to drive towards those solutions. Now, it could be overkill. Um, you know, it, it could not be you know, the, the communication model where sort of the nodes heartbeat to, to, to the Kubernetes control plan on an interval might not be ideal uh, for for that particular model. You know, the form factor, you know, might not be ideal, but I can tell you, you know, people are running Kubernetes on Raspberry Pis and, you know, to, to extremely good effect. So we know it can scale down really small. I think the questions are more around, you know, what does your control surface need to look like, right? How are you updating your workloads? You know, is the car really the source of truth? Are you trying to federate that to, you know, a dealership or to, you know, some manufacturer, right? And that's going to be pushing down updates. And um, I think that's really where the questions lie. And, and, and Kubernetes as sort of the mechanism by which you distribute software uh, you know, to different components in a system like a connected car, you know, I think that's in a lot of ways less interesting because there's just lots of different answers for that. Okay. So I, I won't keep much longer. Just to ask a more far-flung question, I talked to Brendan Burns a, a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things he said that took me by surprise was he said that we might be able to see a return to the model of people buying single purchase binaries of software. And I think what he was referring to was the fact that since we have Kubernetes as a runtime that's on every cloud provider now, regardless of whatever cloud I'm going to deploy to, I could, I'm going to have access to a Kubernetes cluster. So that means you could have a cross-cloud app store which seems like something we haven't really had before because you if you as long as you could define let's say a helm chart for how to deploy a kubernetes app then you could have that as a static binary and you could sell it for $99 or something like that and you could just run it on whatever cloud provider you prefer and like that could be a business model do you think that We'll see changes like that in the way that people purchase and deploy software. Yes, I think we will see that. That said, I th- I think we will see it because I think all the ingredients are there, right? You know, we have not just Kubernetes, you know, on on you know, multiple clouds, but we have a commitment from the CNCF membership, you know, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, Google, um, and others to ensure that we're delivering conformant Kubernetes, which means Kubernetes that works everywhere the same way, you know, for customers. Um, and so that substrate gives us the ability to have that sort of unified c- compute environment. That combined with Helm charts is a packaging mechanism by which you can distribute that kind of software, which has seen, you know, massive uptake, uh, you know, in the community and, and you know, part of the Kubernetes project itself, you know, gives you the um, other ingredient there. And, you know, I think it's only a matter of time before we figure out how to get the rest. The only other thing I'd say is, you know, it's, it's notoriously difficult to build these sort of marketplace solutions where you connect up, you know, providers and ISVs yeah. and, and customers all together. And it's not clear that there's as much customer demand these days uh, to pay for software. 
right? I think that's uh, questionable these days. Certainly for some things, databases, I know people are still you know paying a good amount of money for. But you know the the software that you're talking about, ninety nine dollars. You know, I'm curious, what is that that people are going to pay ninety nine dollars for? And is there going to be enough of that to incentivize ISVs to participate and to incentivize customers to show up and, and purchase? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, I was trying to think about that. I was like, maybe something like Zendesk, right, where you have a help desk service and you know Zendesk great service kind of expensive and there's a kind there's a lot of mid-market companies that would be looking to save a little bit of money and maybe if they could pay $99 as opposed to paying I don't know $800 a year or whatever they pay then yeah maybe yeah, maybe. And, you know, I think, you know, the, the thing I wonder is, is, you know, for a solution like Zendesk, I think, and other similar SaaS software, I think a lot of the benefit um, to end users comes from the operations, yeah, right? And the that's fact right. that they're taking on the operational burden, right? So, but if you can make that sufficiently automated via Kubernetes, you know, and applications package via Helm, potentially that could be a viable model. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? All right, Gabe. Well, great conversation. The time flew by and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Wow.